Do you love Austin's parks and trails? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Austin Parks Cast by Austin Parks Foundation. Meet me outside. Meet me outside, my dear. I want to be. to the Austin Parks Cast. Today, we're bringing you another exciting discussion about the connection between nature, our mental health, and our well-being. Before we jump into some updates and announcements, here's a word from our presenting sponsor. The Austin Parks Cast is presented by Cirrus Logic. Cirrus Logic provides innovative, high-performance signal processing products that rock. Learn how their hardware and software solutions elevate consumer experiences at cirrus.com. And we're back. We've got some exciting things coming up in the next few weeks, but the biggest has got to be It's My Park Day. It's My Park Day Spring starts on Saturday, June 5th and runs through Sunday, June 13th. This edition of It's My Park Day will include both virtual and in-person volunteer opportunities, with our in-person events taking place across the city on Saturday, June 12th, which also happens to be APF's 29th birthday. We recently increased the capacity of our in-person volunteer events from 10 to 25. That means there's lots of park projects that need your help. You can find more information and register to participate at austinparks.org IMPD. And one last thing before we dive into the episode. If you enjoy listening to the Austin Parks cast, tell your friends about us. It's a perfect time to start listening as we're now releasing content that is exclusive to the podcast. But most importantly, thank you for being a listener. We know your time is valuable and we're honored that you've given us a moment of your day. All right, let's get into today's episode. You may or may not know that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. At Austin Parks Foundation, we want to acknowledge the ways that nature and the outdoors can positively impact our mental health. We're thrilled to showcase experts in the field of mental health that work every day to connect people to the healing benefits of nature. We hope you enjoy today's episode, the second of our two-part series on mental health and the outdoors. It's time to hand the reins to Kathleen to introduce our guests and kick off our discussion. Take it away, Kathleen. Here we go. Today, we are so excited to introduce Amber Jaco. Amber is a deep lover of all things outdoors, a late night gardener, and a holder of dual master's degrees in social work and divinity. Amber is owner and therapist at Ecotherapy Austin and loves talking about the indispensable connection between ecological justice and human flourishing. If you want to follow her work, you can find her on Instagram at Ecotherapy Austin or find her website at ecotherapyaustin.com. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amber, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, you know, before we get into our conversation, uh, I just want to ask you a little, to tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So I am the owner and um, a therapist at Ecotherapy Austin. Um, I am doing online therapy only right now, um, and I'm working with um, teens, young adults, and adults, um, and many of them are wanting to seek out connection and healing through access to the natural world. Um, some of them are not interested in that and that's fine. So I, I see kind of a wide array of, of folks. And then just uh, personally, I'm um, interested in and participate in kind of um, equity work and then also um, uh, mindfulness about the environment and sustainability. Awesome. What, what drew you uh, originally to working with people in the outdoors in particular? I've always connected deeply with the outdoors as like as early as I can remember. There was something about building forts outside that felt more like a sanctuary than being indoors. My dog was my first dog was my first best friend. Um, and then kind of my professional interest um, happened when I, while I was in grad school, I was getting a master's of divinity and a master's of social work. And while I was working on those dual master's programs, I was also working on a farm. Um, and so I, would go from really intense kind of school situations and also my practicum at a um, psychiatric treatment center. Um, and I would put my hands in the soil and I would feel instantly better. Um, and so it seemed like there was something to that. And then it just kind of spun. And I found that there was a discipline that was associated um, with this feeling that I personally was experiencing. Um, 
And then I changed my uh, specialization to ecotherapy and horticultural therapy. So that became the focus of my social work studies. Um, and then kind of separately, I was, um, I, before I became a therapist, I was a, a community organizer and, and worked specifically in um, food justice spaces. Um, and so it always felt like there was like a deep connection between human flourishing um, and ecological justice. Um, and so all those things kind of spun together and led me towards um, the practice that I'm doing now. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the folks in our audience might not really be familiar with what um, ecotherapy is. So can you describe what ecotherapy is to our audience and who might not be familiar with the modality and maybe a little bit about how long it's been around? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll first start with the fact that ecotherapy isn't new. Um, I think that um, indigenous and land-based people had deep connection with the natural world in a way that I will never know or understand. Um, I think describing things with science and making them real is a very kind of Western um, idea in the first place. And so uh, ecotherapy is, is as old as um, humans have been on this planet. Um, and, um, ecotherapy basically is utilizing the natural world as a source for healing. Um, so when I'm doing therapy, I see nature as my co-therapist in the process. Um, and then to take it one step further, I, I believe that ecotherapy and just, um, connection with the natural world is more than connecting to the natural world just to get healing from it. I see it more as kind of a reciprocal, um, kind of circular experience, right? So where um, there is dual healing happen, happening when we connect with the natural world. When we connect to the natural world, we want to preserve the natural world. We want to preserve the natural world. We want to heal it. Um, when we heal the natural world, there's something in us that also heals. Yeah, it's uh, the point that you made about it sort of being something that's always been with us, but now it has this sort of name. I, I really connect with that. I worked as an art therapist for a number of years and it was sort of like giving this sort of technical professional name to something that people have done since people were people, you know, making art, being creative. So that really resonates with me a lot. Um, yeah. I'm curious about how your divinity studies inform your current practice. Yeah. So I was kind of a non-traditional divinity student. Um, I, I had no desire to be a pastor or work for a religious organization or institution, but um, when people experience pain, I think one of the first questions that people ask, whether explicitly or implicitly, is where was God? Where was higher power? Where was order? Where was nature? Where was, insert word, when this horrible thing happened to me? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to um, kind of take an existential dive into those questions so that when my clients ask those questions, that I have some sort of idea or framework or blueprint of where they might be on that map. Um, so I, I think spirituality is um, deeply healing um, for people. And I think when people connect with some sort of spirituality, um, it's, it's deeply beneficial to their healing process. Um, and I believe it's deeply personal. So I never, um, I never try to lead people in a, a certain direction. Um, but I do think those questions um, about um, the world and, and chaos and, um, what if I would have done this one decision wrong then, or what, what if I would have done this one thing differently? And that would have changed the entire, um, the entire layout of my day. And then this car crash wouldn't have happened or this blank wouldn't have happened. So I wanted to kind of take a deep dive into those questions so that my clients would feel less alone when they ask those questions themselves. Very cool. Um, can you talk a little bit, I, I think, you know, most people understand that when they go outside, they they feel better. They feel a sense of well-being. Um, we've definitely seen that a lot uh, uh, with the pandemic, noticing people are going immediately sort of gravitating to the outdoors. Um, but I'm curious, you know, if you can talk a little bit about like research that supports the benefits and healing properties of, of interacting with nature. Yeah, absolutely. So there's... Um so much research about just being exposed to a natural scene. So it like even just seeing a picture of nature, being outside in nature, looking through a window in nature, all those things um, cause decreases in heart rate and blood pressure. Um, 
relaxation of muscle tension and also increases in brain alpha waves, which are indicative of feelings of calm. Um, so all those things biologically are happening. Um, also, the, the solitude of nature can also help deal with the kind of sensory overload that we experience in the modern life, um, which is actually really activating to the nervous system. And so um, kind of uh, having solitude in nature um, and, and, and nature sounds are also naturally um, healing and calming for the most part for individuals. And so um, having that instead of the sound of leaf blowers <laughs> right next to you and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, what I love to science that supports the reciprocity of, of healing. And um, Hoff and McNutt have found, this is a social work study, they found that environmental and human well-being are inextricably linked in a positive correlation. And that was traced over groups with social work practice with individuals, families, policies, cultural groups, social work education, et cetera. Um, so I find that personally very exciting. And then um, there's a science affirming this kind of spiritual, almost spiritual connection that we have with the natural world. Um, Harvard biologist and Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, um, he coined the biophilia hypothesis, but his, uh, his main kind of thing is that humans have an intrinsic and genetically determined need to deeply affiliate um, with the natural world and um, life forms. Um, and so I think that kind of hits back to the kind of the spirituality of connection, connecting with the natural world. And again, the kind of intrinsic part, like you were talking about how like to be human is to connect with art and to be human is also to connect with the natural world. Um, when humans first um, appeared on our planet, um, people didn't have any other resources other than the natural world. So literally humans were created with the natural world as the, the only resource needed. Um, and therefore our nerve systems are primed to be aided by the natural world. So interesting. Yeah, I would love to um, do some more reading on that because it, it does really strike me that um, we think of it as such a other place rather than that we are so inherently part of it, but we've created so much distance between us, there are structures and all these other kinds of things, but just the idea that we're, it's like, it's out there instead of we're in it. Yeah, definitely. Even things like windows are interest, interesting philosophically, right? So this is like, it's like glass screen, you know, that protects us from the outdoor world and, and things like, and I love that we have windows, not, not sure, dark. Sure. Yeah. But, yeah, um, exactly. yeah, absolutely. Some connection. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is interesting. Um, um, you, you said before um, that you've, you know, you really uh, work from an equity, through an equity lens. And um, so I'm curious, how and why have you prioritized diversity and equity in your work? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with why. Um, the natural world continues to teach me um, about the beauty and necessity of diversity um, for the whole ecosystem's well-being um, and for my own well-being. Um, so I personally, I cannot feel whole. Um, and I notice that the natural world itself is missing something vital when parts of the ecosystem are not given space to thrive um, and play their own particular role. Um, and so, you know, I, in a sense, the, the phrase like, I'm not free until everyone is free, that, that is a very ecosystem-based um, thought. Um, and every, every unique being um, is needed and our ecosystem is crippled um, when those individuals um, are oppressed and not included. Um, I also feel like I can't, I can't talk about connecting with the natural world without first addressing the ways in which the dominant culture, which I'm a part of and complicit in, has deeply harmed um, the natural world um, and the humans who stewarded the land before me. Um, I think specifically as a therapist, as one who works with trauma, I, it's important for me to acknowledge the trauma that has been done to land-based people over time, um, uh, the extraction of their resources, their tradition, their culture, their children, their women. Um, those things are deeply um, traumatic and cause attachment wounds, um, which I feel like, you know, in therapy world are very, very, um, and, and, and to all humankind, you know, are very um, important things to know and uh, redress. Um, and so I guess that's, that's the big, um, that's a big why. Um, and the how for me is, I feel like the, the most important part of the how for me is 
that it is a journey that I will always be on. So I'm, I'm going to be a student of other people's experiences that are different than me. So I'm never going to be black, not brown. I'm not indigenous. I don't know anything other than, um, I don't know anything explicitly other than what my own experience is, which means I'm never going to fully get it. Um, and so I kind of wanted to start out with this because I think pretending that I'm the white person that has it all together is one disrespectful to people who have experienced so much pain um, associated um, uh, with inequity. And then also it's it's not very hospitable to people who um, are on their path or journey to trying to be more awake and alive to um, inequities and disparities that exist in the world. Um, and so when I am able to um, verbally talk about my own missteps. It's actually an invitation for someone to say, oh yeah, me too. Um, and I think when, when I pretend to have it all together, then it, it feels, people feel afraid to, to start the journey. And so I think the how being a journey is so important to, to me in the way that I kind of conceptualize all that. So I'm trying to be a good steward of my privilege, um, to be open to, um, change and constant change and constant missteps. Um, and uh, continually look to the natural world and to the voices of other beings that teach me better about their experience than I can ever assume. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was just reading um, some guidance on nonviolent communication, and one of the things that was so interesting, a lot of it was about, you know, in speaking with empathy, listening with empathy, and one of the things I thought was really interesting that I hadn't thought about before was not coming from a place of, oh, that must be so hard to be you, sort of like, I'm here in this okayness space. And, and because really, then it's like, I guess it's more like sympathy or, or something less than sympathy. I'm not even sure the word I'm looking for exactly. But just that way of really not connecting to the person and, and making them feel like, you're sad and alone or whatever the feeling is. And I'm over here being okay, you know, and how, you know, people, it's so difficult for people to connect to that. Even if you're coming from a place of, Oh, I feel so bad for you because you're struggling. Um, so anyway, it's just interesting um, thinking about the ways that we listen and the way that we reflect back to people. Um, you know, you, you're obviously speaking from the therapeutic lens but also just how we do it in daily life is so important absolutely i love nonviolent communication strategies i think that they're yeah. so important for a dialogue and discourse especially today in this very politically charged world that we're living in um mm. i also agree with you and it's it's kind of hard to put into words so i'm like trying to figure out how I, I would put it into words as well but yeah sometimes sympathy creates this um it others the person. So you are different yeah. than me and other than me. And I think that's why I keep trying to pull back to the ecosystem um, mindset, which reminds me that I like that everyone's liberation is, is wound up in everyone else's um, and that, and that there is some sort of something that is shared in other people's experiences, even though I can't touch it or reach it because that's not mine. Right. Um, that kind of in invites you into moving beyond sympathy or looking down on, other people um, thinking it must be so hard, but seeing also their power and resilience. And so um, I had a friend talk to me about this and I felt like it was such an important point to make, but she's like, in, in this time where a lot of people are becoming more aware of what the black experience is like in America, um, you know, people are reading all these anti-racist books, which is great, but also like read about like black power, read about uh, black joy, read about, I mean, there's, there's so much more to, um, the experience of any other individual like there's a lot of like really like amazing artists and writers and and things like that celebrating the the whole being of the other rather than just focusing on um the the net inequity and and again the inequity is i mean that's you know what needs to be redressed in our society but i think you know um seeing joy and power and strength and all those things kind of help view people as whole rather than right yeah right something to be pitied or um you know and, and people when they're not haven't experienced that can so easily uh be de-energized by the tragedy of it and then not not see them as people and not have a lot of 
not come to the work with energy of like, how do we make this different or how do we, how do we look at this whole person? So yeah, this language is so important. So yeah. Absolutely. Uh, um, so this is a good segue. Um, I'm curious, you know, from your sort of vantage point, what are the barriers that you've observed for BIPOC communities when it comes to inclusion and outdoor experiences in particular? This is such a huge question. Um, I feel pretty, uh, I feel not particularly qualified to answer it, um, but I will give as, as much as I, I can. I, I think that acknowledging history is one of the most important things. So just moving from a place of land stewardship where indigenous people felt uh, or were engaging in the natural world in a, um, a reciprocal way to the opposite of where the colonists came in, colonized the space, and it, it moved from land stewardship to land ownership, um, and where a, um, uh, a consciousness of mutuality shifted to a consciousness of extraction. Um, I feel like that shift, that shift of consciousness has really impacted the way that we view land and people. Um, and so I think when we look at outdoor spaces um, as belonging to certain people and not belonging to other people, I think we already are wrong. Um, uh, Pinar, who um, they have started an organization called Queer Nature. Um, they use this term called the an ecology of belonging. And so ecology of belonging is such a powerful phrase um, because, you know, it's, it's interesting that the outdoors belong, even belong to some people, not to other people. So I think that that just I, philosophical idea in the first place is already off. So I think we have to kind of start there and like move down. Um, I also think like, I don't think, but I know that um, black and brown communities have disproportionately less access to parks and land, and they are also disproportionately um, around more toxic waste in their communities than their white counterparts. Um, and it's also noted that, you know, white individuals um, kind of produce the most amount of consumptive waste. Um, so I think just like noting that um, and then noting who feels like they belong in certain places and who doesn't and how many, how many people of color do you see, um, in state and national parks also like noting the irony of what, what it's like to be an indigenous person who has to pay this, the state or the government for entrance into land that was once theirs, you know? And so I think that even the consciousness shift of that, I think needs to be, you know, addressed. And, um, I think the land back movement is, is, um, really asking for that irony to be kind of brought to light and um, addressed in a very real way, tangible way. Um, I also internationally, the United States has a history of shipping our waste to other countries. So we bypass our own environmental regulations um, and deeply harming uh, land in less wealthy nations. Mm -hmm. Land ownership in, in the United States is primarily a white experience. 97% of the farmland is owned by white people. So I think that's also um, another kind of ownership oriented um, disparity. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, segregation, like public spaces used to be segregated. Um, and that's a, a huge thing to to note and realize the implications of. I, I lived in Waco for a while. That's where I got my two master's degrees and worked on the farm and did community organizing. And I had no idea that there used to be a spring-fed pool in the middle of the city, and it was thriving and beautiful. However, when it when um, they had to um, desegregate it, they chose to close the entire thing down and to stop up the um, the spring rather than um, desegregating that area. Right. Oh my gosh. And so people still live with those stories. Those stories are so alive in people, and that wasn't that long ago. And and so I think. Remembering that public spaces, we use the word public spaces, and this has been a part of my journey of understanding, public spaces in my mind has always meant everyone belongs. Mm -hmm. And I've had to re-educate and I have to continue to re-educate myself about what that actually means and what the history of those spaces actually are. Um, also, many lynchings took place in natural settings too, right? So those are, you can't, you know, take that out from 
um, people's experiences. Um, and in Austin, it's just interesting, like, and, and I'm not, I'm not making a direct comment about what I think should or should not be done. But like, when we say who is allowed to sleep outside, where they are allowed to sleep outside, again, it's about who belongs where. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's an important question that we need to ask. Um, and I think a lot of people are really uncomfortable with visible pain. Mm -hmm. And so when we see people who are experiencing visible pain, we don't want to see that. Um, and so we kind of shift the belonging of, of space. And so I think that's a, that's a current iteration of, of the ecology of belonging or lack thereof. Yeah. So, sorry, I, that was, that was a lot of information, but. No, there is, but there is so much there. There's so many layers. I mean, that it's, it's hard to encapsulate in one conversation. Yeah, totally. You hit on some really important points and some things that I've, in other conversations I've had, you know, been lucky enough to have in the last year where we've really been digging into this. Um, one of, one of them uh, being um, the separate but equal, but separate but not equal, really. And, and Austin is a really great example of that, where um, when the city, you know, during the redlining and sort of city planning that um, we still feel the effects of today, um, you know, to say the least, you know, part of it was creating all these parks on the east side, but are they equal? You know, if you look at these places, would you say that they are equivalently taken care of and all these things? And that was, you know, part of what we've been um, working to as, a, as an organization and along with, you know, the Parks and Recreation Department being committed to um, making improvements and, and investments through an equity lens, you know, over the last few years, really acknowledging that there is maybe as much green space, um, you know, in, from east to west um, in some areas, um, but that is it equal? Um, and was it ever really equal? And then also, of course, in more like in North Austin, um, because it's so um, heavily, you know, kind of industrial and business oriented, and uh, although that's a very rapidly growing part of Austin, there's a real lack of green space entirely there. And so, how do we close those gaps and then also acknowledge the underinvestment in other areas and what that means for people's experience being outside? Um, so, um, so, so much to discuss there. Before we dive back into the episode, here's a quick word from our sponsors. The Austin Parks Cast is brought to you by ACL Music Festival. Taking place in Silker Park in Austin, Texas, ACL Fest has generated over $41.6 million for Austin's park system since 2005. Learn more at aclfestival.com. The Austin Parks Cast is also brought to you by Wheatsville Co-op. Wheatsville is a full-service natural foods cooperative grocery store that's been serving Austinites since 1976. Learn more at wheatsville.coop. Thanks so much to our sponsors for making our podcast possible. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, it is really important work. And of course, you know, there's conversations like this that we can really have where we ask those questions. I think the questions you raised are so important um, to actually just ask the question, you know, to just acknowledge some things and not sweep things under the rug. Um, so, you know, I'm also thinking about for those that um, might not live near a park or green space, despite the work that's being done to try to create more opportunities for that. How might a person who really doesn't have access to quality nature space, um, how might they access some of the benefits of, of nature? Yeah, this is a really important question. And I think this is a really important question specifically for this year plus, right? When we've been asked to stay inside for so many reasons and certain people um, have, have not left their home for health reasons, et cetera. And so there's been so much inside being. And I think that's also had a huge impact on mental health. Um, but things even just like shifting from being sitting indoors to breathing air outside um, can be helpful. So sitting on a porch, um, it, there are birds everywhere in the middle of cities, in the middle of nowhere. And so we've got some more than human kin that we can hear singing um, that can kind of center and, and center us. And I think getting to know the natural landscapes around you. So 
what kind of flowers grow in the cracks in the concrete that are next to you? Um, can you pick them? Uh, do they grow back? How do they, how do they go? Um, what kind of insects do you have around you? Um, what kind of birds? Maybe getting a, um, getting a book about birds and um, getting, getting to know more intimately um, the, the little ecosystem that you live in. Because I think e- even, even in spaces where um, you don't have a park nearby you, there's still an ex- ecosystem that exists and microorganisms that play a massive and huge role in your, um, your being there. Um, so I think that's, that's one way. Another way is bringing the outdoors indoors. Um, and so, um, putting plants inside your home, they clean the air, they increase, uh, senses, your sense of calm. Um, also even having a picture of a really calming scene inside your room, um, can be really helpful. I was a, um, a school-based therapist for a while, um, out in Marble Falls, and a lot of my kids were not able to go outside for a variety of reasons. And so I, I had one wall and it was completely at a, uh, filled with like this um, huge nature scene. And then I put up a little tent in front of it. So kids could like feel like they were outdoor in nature as, as, as much as they could possibly in that moment. Um, I also bring a lot of nature in, um, items inside. So like having a, a rubbing stone that you keep near you. Um, having a piece of bark or a pine cone or whatever it is that exists in your particular space. Those are also ways to bring the outdoors, um, indoors. Um, we talked about windows before, kind of ironically, but but truly there's a, a landmark study done by, I think, Ulrich, um, and I believe it was in the 1980s, and they found that um, by having a window that had a picture of the outdoors um, and a natural space helped people who had gallbladder surgery heal faster than those who did not have a window to the outdoor space. Wow. So I think little things like that really do impact our well-being, um, and so it kind of uh, creates space for creativity in spaces where we're kind of confused about how we can connect. Yeah, yeah. I've worked in schools and hospitals, and so um, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it has always struck me. You know, I worked in a cancer hospital with children and of course you know there's these real concerns about um immune compromised children but it always kind of struck me that they were sort of sealed up in this bubble with like infection and i mean you know it's kind of a well-known thing obviously nothing against hospitals lots of healing happens there but um but just that there is such a disconnect and that is you know it's kind of well known that people get sick in hospitals from other from hospital-borne illnesses and um, I don't know what the answer is, but it just definitely seemed like there's got to be more attention paid to um, that di- taking someone completely away from these things that are rejuvenating and and um, and hopefully, you know, as we kind of acknowledge more research on how interconnected we are with the outdoors, like changes to institutions will happen in that way. Schools being so you know, indoor focused rather than, you know, having these kind of open campuses, you know, it's something that we're really working on um, in our city's Connecting Children to Nature initiative with the city. But of course, you know, there's just, you're kind of up against these long time, the design of buildings, the design of institutions being so focused on in being indoors rather than outdoors. So it's a challenge. (laughs) Yes. And I actually, this is just kind of a, a funny anecdote, but I, um, I really don't like flying. It makes me nervous. And so what I do to make myself calm is I, I have a, yeah, maybe this will help me too. Yeah. Um, I have a, a photo album on my phone of all nature pictures of me and people that I love being in nature. And on your iPhone, you can, um, you can set it to music, like calming music. And so I just sit as we're about to take off and I just like, look at the pictures and kind of do some deep breathing and that really resets me. Um, and if, and if you don't have an iPhone, just even having, like I encourage clients sometimes to print out pictures that are really calming in nature, have some space in nature that you can draw upon in your mind and bring yourself back to like, those things can be really powerful in moments of, of stress. So. Yeah. Kind of like a guided meditation sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. That's a suggestion. Um, speaking of kind of, 
you know, working within those systems. Um, do you have suggestions or ideas of how city departments or park school systems, since you've worked in schools, um, can improve their work towards more equitable access to the outdoors and the benefits to people for being outdoors? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the most important things is working to have a board um, and employee decision, decision makers that are truly representative of the community that they are serving. Um, so often people in power are not as diverse as the city and the group of people that they are trying to serve. Um, and I mean, like proportionally, not just like one token, not white or, uh, not white individual, you right. know, in, in, in those decision-making positions. Um, so in addition to having people higher up, have better representation, I feel like people are so much better equipped to communicate with their own communities than having, um, someone outside of their community come in and ask them questions and maybe ask the wrong questions and maybe not do it in the most thoughtful way. And so um, I think representation is like, I just want to shout out from the rooftops. I think that's one of the most important kind of things that we can talk about and kind of advocate for. Um, and then representation, not only among ethnicities, races, et cetera, but also um, folks who are um, of low socioeconomic status, I think, like talking to people who are in poor neighborhoods, what do you want in your park? Maybe it's not what we assume that you want in your park, you know? And so having questions asked to people who um, we usually forget, um, talking to the unhoused population, what spaces feel safe to you? How can, how can we make the outdoors um, accessible to you in a way that feels um nourishing to your soul because your soul is just as important as every other soul in this you know space and so asking those questions of people that are normally not involved in the decision making process and making sure that their their voices are you know appropriately addressed i i worked in waco and there's this long horrible history of um people going into the community well-meaning i used to be one of them um you know, social workers, like going into communities, what do you think you need? And blah, 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 blah. And then there, nothing would change. Right. And so then people get exhausted from being asked questions. So like making sure that it, if you're asking questions, make sure that the decision has not already been made about what will happen and that it's not just something that is done to make white people feel better about um, the decisions they're already making. Um, so that really engaging, not just sort of, Yeah. Uh, presenting, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I've been a part of this problem. And I think that's probably why I feel so passionate about it. Cause I, I've seen this in myself and I've seen how kind of disrespectful it can be um, to yeah. other individuals. And so I, I think it's also important to share that information so that people can maybe see themselves some, some part along in that process. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's a really good point. Um, I, I mean, I would definitely say it's something that, um, that, you know, for example, we, we work with park adopters in neighborhoods and, um, you know, the really trying to get park adopter groups going that really represent the neighborhood. And so often the, the folks who have time and um, resources to be able to do it aren't necessarily reflective of the entire community. Sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. But mm -hmm. when we know that they aren't, making sure that those folks are really rallying, you know, they aren't being the spokespeople for the neighborhood, but rather the ones that bring the neighborhood to the table, to the decision-making table, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and that can be incredibly challenging, you know, um, but I agree it has to, you ha there has to be a sense of curiosity and, and um, not just sort of, well, I think this is the best thing and I'm going to sort of convince you of it. And, um, and, that you're not really going to make changes that people are going to care for and support and, and act, activate, which is kind of a term that we use for getting people to a place. Mm -hmm. uh, if it doesn't feel like they were part of the decision-making process. So I think that's so important and um, a, a really great reminder for everyone. Um, I love that you use the word curiosity because I feel like that is key. And you and I have talked before, and I think something that you shared was um, how often in the work that you do, you have to, you get attached to that idea and you realize, oh, this is not working and you pivot, you know? And so I think that your willingness to pivot when you're getting feedback that says, even this idea that you're really excited about, I think that shows a lot of, um, 
curiosity and growth. And I think that that kind of pattern of like, when you are in an organization, you get so excited. If you're in a nonprofit or if you're working for the city and you're mm-hmm. like, oh, this is going to change it. And if you're hearing feedback that says this is not going to change it, change it, the willingness, like you've kind of shared with me before to, to pivot, um, I think is so important. And it, and reminds us that the work is again, not about us, but about the people that we're trying to serve. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Um, so, you know, can you tell us about organizations that you might know or individuals who are really making impact? Um, you know, folks that you, maybe you've collaborated with or people that you admire, um, you know, just people who you think are really doing, doing the work out in our community. Yeah, absolutely. I will say the first, first and foremost, the natural world is still my greatest teacher. Um, that's where I've learned the most about, you know, equity in, in addition to um, people that I'm close with and friends with. I think locally, Starla Simmons, uh, is it Simmons or Simons? Do you know? I know Simmons. Okay. Yeah, we've actually had her last year on the, on the, um, the uh, summit series and, um, and she, as someone I've, I've admired for a long time um, uh, in her work with the city. Uh, oh, I always get this wrong. Um, Children and Nature Collaborative of Austin um, yeah. Equity Summit. And she did, she um, facilitated some conversations there and they were like very impactful for me. So, yes. Yes. I would say she's like the local rock star um, on ecotherapy and equity. She's a black ecotherapist. Her, her work focuses on equity. She's an assistant professor at UT. I've heard her speak and I um, have been very much influenced by um, her wisdom. So I think she is, she is amazing. So singing her praises. Um, I mentioned Queer Nature before, but Queer Nature and Outdoor Afro are two organizations that focus on representation. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the biggest things is like so many people don't see people like them outdoors for you know, good reasons. So I think organizations that focus on um, those kind of things, queer nature I, is, it's really exciting because so much of the hunting and outdoor skills industry is um, uh, kind of represented by people who look very different, who have very different kind of ideas um, and experiences. And so queer nature offers space for people who are part of the LGBTQ community um, to go out in nature and feel safe um, and empowered by learning their own skills in their own way. And so I think um, seeing people that represent you is so empowering and helpful and queer nature. I think that their um, Pinar has done. And, uh, and so also they, they have done amazing work. And so I, I refer clients over um, to them pretty often. Um, outdoor Afro again, like, um, I think their their tagline is where um, nature and black people meet. I think that that is so important to have representation. So queer nature, outdoor Afro. Um, on Instagram, two of my favorite people to follow are Illuminatives, mm. uh, and they specifically talk about the indigenous experience. Um, they share resources of indigenous people doing really cool work um, in media and music. And um, I've been watching Rutherford Falls, which is really exciting. It's a have you heard of it? Uh-uh. No. It's um it's a collaboration with some of the writers from Parks and Rec and um Indigenous writers. Um oh, cool. and, wow. it's kind of, and it's um uh kind of similar humor, um, but also kind of captures the indigenous experience as well. Um and so it's really I think really important to see representation in media um and reading books. Um, listening to artists um, that are different from you. So Illuminatives Illuminatives has been really helpful for me in that regard. Um, And then Intersectional Environmentalist um, has been really fun for for me to follow as well. So kind of talking about the the deep intersection between the equity of people and the equity of land. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Good tips. Um, So for our, our audience who are... I, I would assume all park lovers, um, how can we sort of, how would you suggest advocating for more equitable access to the outdoors? And do you have some, some tangible steps for that end? Yeah, I can, I can share some ideas. I, I think the first thing is always starting with yourself. 
um, and looking within. So for me, a question that I continually ask myself and I need to continue to ask myself is how can I continue to work to disrupt the systems that benefit me um, for the betterment of the entire ecosystem? Um, And so that's something that I um, kind of hold dear to my heart and continue to work um, towards. I think starting within first. I think also getting acquainted with the diversity in your own backyard or nearby um, space. Um, I've learned a lot by from the barred owl that I hear at night or the bubbling of Barton Springs. Um, so celebrating diversity um, in my own space, um, I think it kind of lends itself naturally to celebrating diversity. Um, one of my favorite, and I think I might have talked to you about this, but I recently went to Big Bend. Um, mm-hmm. And they talked about, there was a, a placard and it talked about the ecosystem that kind of flo- like just naturally flows between Mexico and the United States. Um, so that these kind of, you know, human-made borders don't exist for the natural world. So little little things like that, I, I'm continually surprised by and, and enlivened by those kind of um, metaphors. Um, I think another thing that has been big for me is learning about the land that I live on. Um, so right now you and I are connecting over um, Comanche land. Um, I don't know exactly where you are, but you know where I am. And so noting that um, like the indigenous uh, stewardship of this land um, that I call home um, is, is important to note the, the experiences of the individuals that lived here before me um, and that they're still, um, indigenous people are still fighting for their rights and, and their land. And so um, getting connected to the land that you live on is uh, can be really powerful. Um, there's a website called um, it's native-land.ca. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a, a cool uh, experience for people to look at. And um, I mean, I still have lots of my own work to do to get to know um, how to be um, a better, more equitable um, individual that lives on, on land that is not my own. Um, but I think that's a, um, a great place to start. Um, and then also getting involved in local politics. I feel like when we're voting for president, there are so many people that don't go all the way down the list, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, or we're, we're voting for, for a state, like the propositions that our city passes, um, in between major elections are so very important for human flourishing and environmental flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so staying up to date about those things, um, protecting Barton Springs, there's an entire Save the Springs Association that is um, dedicated to making sure that um, more pollution is not entering into our spaces. Like we know that Lady Bird Lake has had lots and lots of challenges with people dumping um, sewage, et cetera, in, in there and making it um, not a safe place for um, animals or humans occasionally. So I think um, really getting to know the space that we live in and um, also contacting your congresspeople um, and your representatives and your council member, they represent, they represent us. Um, and the more they hear from, they want to get reelected. And so the more they hear masses of people call in and say, Hey, I'm, I'm a constituent. My name is Amber Jaco. I live here. I'm really passionate about this. Um, I think keeping their numbers saved in your phone um, is really helpful. Um, a friend of mine told me about this and I, I really like this idea, but um, she was telling me that uh, she would get a group of friends together once a month and they would plan something really fun. And then at the end of the evening, um, they would all get out the phones and just make a quick call to the representative. So once a month they were um, kind of informing their representative and they were all doing kind of socially minded activities. And so that was a way for them to advocate for the things that they are um, passionate about. Um, make it a regular thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I I think too, this year plus has been so full of people being paralyzed with the amount of pain that they're seeing on the news and media and things like that. And one of the best antidotes to that paralyzing fear, this feeling that you can't do anything is, um, is to, to vote, to make a change, to do something small and even change, like tiny changes, like reducing plastic use in your own home. Like I, I feel such a deeper connection with the natural world. It feels so good to my soul when I'm 
you know, when I use reusable cups, when I um, switched over from using um, paper towels to reusable wipes and, you know, things like that. Those tiny little decisions um, are are active and loving decisions that we can make to make the world a better place. And so knowing that little and small and huge um, things all require a tiny step. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, I, I, I love this sort of holistic view that you're presenting of how um, people can, you know, the, being whole in yourself is also making these impacts to our world, to other people, you know, that it's um, so thinking about, you know, we've kind of started the conversation, focus on ecotherapy as a modality, but really it's so much about this bigger picture of how we connect um, to each other and to the natural world. Um, we definitely advocate for, for folks to, to vote and to, the local politics are really where you can see this very direct impact. I think there's no other place you can really see like, oh, I, I do see that it made a difference um, how many people turned out for that. Or when I went to speak to the city council, um, you know, when I was on the dais, I mean, we had people um, go and testify about parks and it makes a difference. Um, you know, people really are listening um, at that level that, I mean, I think people listen at a higher level, but you can kind of see as people move up this sort of chain uh, in our you know, from local to national politics becomes a very different kind of um, picture of how connected people are to that. So um, I love that kind of reminder to folks that they really can make an impact. Um, well, thank you so much, Amber. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I really feel like you've given um, the people who are listening so much to think about. And um, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much for the opportunity. I enjoyed chatting. Me too. Thanks. A friendly reminder that season one of the Austin Parks cast is available now on your favorite podcast platforms. Also, our 2021 Park Summit sessions are underway now. You can find all of our Park Summit series content at austinparks.org backslash summit. Do you have a question or topic you'd like us to talk about? You can leave us a voice message on our Anchor FM webpage at anchor.fm backslash Austin Parkscast. We might even play your message on the show. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you all soon. Austin Parks Foundation is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving parks, trails, and green spaces across our beloved city. Our tagline is People Plus Parks. We aim to give every Austinite a park within a 10-minute walk no matter what part of town they call home. Supporting our work in the parks is as simple as sending a text. Send APF to 76278 to get started. With your support, we can provide access to wonderful outdoor spaces for every awesome. The Austin Parks Cast is a production of Austin Parks Foundation and is presented by Cirrus Logic with support from ACL Music Festival and Wheatsville Co-op. Learn more about the work we do to improve parks for every Austinite at austinparks.org.